Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. It is Thursday night. This is episode 243. We're recording this live episode on April 28th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby, sitting hey, across the evening. <laughs> How are you it doing? Is. Hey, I tried to switch it up for the intro. I did. I, I was trying I to like be... that. It was, there was energy. There was dynamicism, and that's a big word. Um, I liked it. Now, and now it's going to taper off. We got a great show for you all tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about how a helicopter will attempt to catch a rocket booster in midair. We'll also answer some questions from the community about the reality of what the day-to-day is like for a UX designer or researcher. We're also going to be talking about changing career paths to UX research and our thoughts on data-driven personas. But first... Let's talk about some quick uh, community updates, programming notes, whatever you want to call it. Barry, what's the latest over at 1202? Well, the latest over 1202 is that I've been finding a bit wanting this week because we were meant to be pulling together lots of material for um, out of the Human Factors Conference over here in the UK. So it was EHF 2022. Turns out that when you leave the box with all your cables, that you can't get in live material. But um, the community has come together and we will be pulling, pulling some interviews um, to, to today and tomorrow. So there will be a new episode coming up with a montage of different opinions and thoughts about how that conference went, what people learned from it, and what they would like to see next time. We'll, we'll also have some coverage for you here on uh, the Human Factors cast end. In the meantime, you always check out the latest episode over there. Uh, I guess we're at that part of the show where we talk about Human Factors news. Is that now? Yeah, that's now. Yes, Human Factors news. This part of the show where we talk about exactly that. Barry, what's the story this week? So this week is going to be how a, a, a helicopter will try and catch a rocket booster in midair. So the longest journey begins with a single step, and that step gets expensive when you're in the space business. Earth's gravity is so stubborn that by necessity, two-thirds of the rocket is in the first stage. And that first stage has historically ended up as trash on the ocean floor after less than three minutes of flight. Making those boosters reusable is clearly the dream. SpaceX recently has been famously been landing its Falcon 9 boosters on drone ships, which is amazing and mind-bending to watch, but actually in reality, with the complexity behind it, is very hard to pull off. Rocket Lab, another um, company within the, uh, within the space domain, says it's got another way. If all goes well, its next flight that's going to be carrying 34 satellites, instead of being dropped in the, in the Pacific, the, these uh, spent first stage will be snared in midair by a helicopter as it descends by parachute. It'll then be brought back to base for possible refurbishment and reuse. This is going to be clearly going to be a complex maneuver. The helicopter needs to be in exactly the right spot. They need to know exactly where the first stage is, is and it's going to be, and how, how it decelerates so that they can catch it. They practiced each individual element, and this exercise is all about putting together all them individual elements to, and making them work. There are no guarantees that it's going to work, and it's, go, they, it's going to be quite interesting to see if they can actually make it, um, pull it off. Nick, are you into helicopters catching uh, first stage boosters as they drop out of the air? Oh, I, this is this is my favorite. Uh, the the story. This is the, my favorite thing to do is catch rocket boosters out of the air. 
Uh, look, like, um, so, so, uh, really quick, just a quick update on this. I'm looking now to see if there has been any update. Uh, they had said the it it would potentially be April 27th or April 28th, and to be clear, we are recording this on April April 28th. We're looking now on the Rocket Lab website live to see if, in fact, uh, this has happened, and it does not look like it has uh look like it now they're targeting tomorrow april 29 so this is still a a developing story we like to talk about these things after they happen but um you know it was planned to happen before the show uh anyway there's just some delays my initial thoughts uh this at first glance is very cool it seems like there's a lot of really complex things going on here um but as you and i had discovered or talked about in the pre-show it might be a little bit more simple than that. But Barry, what are, what are your kind of initial thoughts here? Gut reaction. I really like it. I mean, people who uh, listen to other episodes of, of the show know that I'm a, a bit of a SpaceX geek, a bit of a SpaceX fan. But where SpaceX has obviously done a lot of work around um, quite intricate maneuvers in getting landing onto um, onto a onto a sea, sea platform and land platforms to get it to land in such a, a way that it's you could almost fly fly off again straight away this is taking a I guess it's cheaper I guess it's more reusable um, and and that type of thing um, and so what they're doing they're taking that innovation the next to the next stage how do they take something that is that, that's kind of been done um, in in a way um but actually making it cheaper making it more effective making it so that it is a different way of, of playing with it and it'll be interesting to see if they can pull it off because i think it is it is a complex thing to do um that you're you're playing around with situational awareness you're playing around with your with um a, a, a changing um environment um but fundamentally this should make space more accessible yeah, uh, it, it's a different way of doing the same thing, but for cheaper and, uh, yeah, for cheaper. <laughs> I mean, look, like, there's, there's, I, I hate to put the cart before the horse, but I almost want to talk about the solution here and what's happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm done with that. Yes. Because because uh, the, the way that I wanted to approach this episode was like, let's look at human factors and helicopter transportation and in uh helicopter culture and all that stuff um and you know i think it's a good springboard it's something that we haven't really talked about on the show before and so it's you know good to talk about but i think um yeah let's let's talk about the the solutions uh to to what this is essentially they're they're grabbing a helicopter and and catching a parachuting um uh, rocket with with a with a sky crane um I, yeah I, I mean just to i guess it, well, let's why don't we start off just by quickly um outlining what they're expecting to do yeah um so they're, they're gonna launch um they're gonna they, they, their rocket's called called electron so they're gonna, gonna do this electron launch which has done loads of stuff before um it's about it's 18 meters tall so it's quite um so that the, the the first stage rockets are about 12 meters tall so that's quite a decent um size it's going to take off from new zealand the first stage burns out after about 70 kilometers um and so th- and that's about two two and a half minutes into the flight so it'll drop off and following a long arc and we've all seen that i think most people have seen that that sort of thing on telly where it falls so it does descend quite comparatively slowly you can you can sort of see that happen but now they've equipped them with heat shielding um so then because he obviously 
reach quite a hot temperature. At about 13 kilometers um, above the Earth, a drogue parachute, parachute will deploy, and then followed by a main chute at about six, six, six kilometers. And that the, the time between that 13 and six is about um, 60 seconds. So they, that slows the rocket substantially. So that rocket will only be descending at about 36 kilometers an hour. It still feels quite weird to say 36 kilometers an hour is slow. Um, so then what they're gonna do is they're gonna have a helicopter um, going and using this uh, using the helicopter to go and catch the this parachute this rocket that is um, descending on parachute, and so what they're going to be doing is using um, a grappling hook on a long cable, um, which does sound like it's something out, a bit out of a Bond movie. Um, so the plan is for the helicopter to fly over the rocket, so over the top of the parachute, snag the cable, uh, snag the parachute cables, the, the parachute lines in this trailing grappling hook. The rocket should never get wet. The rocket should never get in the water. It should just be lowered onto a ship or back on land. Um, and so that will then make that all, all re reusable. By the fact that you've got no salt um, salt corrosion on the rocket or anything like that, that's where the value of this this comes into play. And you think with that, that, you know, I don't know if anybody's YouTubed. Um, I, I know I have, because again, geek. Um, the amount of failures that SpaceX had in doing, in landing on its drone, on its, uh, drone ships. Um, there was lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of failures before the, uh, before the success. And now they have, more often than not, they have success. Um, whereas this actually sounds really simple comparatively simple um you know the pilot's got to fly over um it might be a we could talk about whether this is a sighted or an unsighted catch um how do they manage that how do they what other skills are they employing that they should already have right. um but there's no new technology into um into the rockets themselves it throws a parachute it doesn't have to re-navigate itself back to uh um uh, back to earth it doesn't have to um work out where it's at it doesn't have to re um, fire its, its its rockets or anything like that to get the right attitude. It doesn't have to coordinate with a drone ship, um, so it doesn't have to navigate anywhere. It, the more I talk about, it, actually, the more it's quite the more it is quite exciting. Uh, it is exciting, yeah. No, like, uh, don't get me wrong. This is exciting. This is exciting. It just it's it seems like maybe it's just to me the um, the solution mm. is so. Um, Basic isn't the word that I'm looking for, but it's just so practical that it just it yeah. feels like, why didn't we think of this before? Um, <laughs> you know, especially when you when you do consider all those uh, added costs of you know the salt corrosion and everything, uh, the 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 littering of these rocket boosters on the ocean floor. I think you're absolutely right. There's um some some a lot of excitement around it for for sure for for you and I. Uh, even and and um i it's just the sol solution so simple catch catch a parachute attached to a rocket with a helicopter and um you know if you're looking at the thumbnail for this episode it's it's exactly that yeah. so yeah i mean so i guess from looking at it from 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 this human factors perspective the the big skill here is obviously in the in the pilot or the crew of the aircraft so they're using a sikorsky um to do that and they're going to hang um a long cable underneath with with big hooks fine okay so that that should oh, that feels like that's all commercial off the shelf stuff 
a lot of pilots now, particularly if you're using like them, the big, uh, big helicopters, so Chinooks are the same. Pilots are now trained to be able to undersling, undersling loads, um, to be able to drop them on and off. So having a something slung underneath the helicopter is not new. Um, so again, they're reusing um, ideas and skills and training that should already be there. What I've never seen is, and it might just be just because I haven't seen it, is a, uh, a helicopter flying un unsighted effectively over a parachute something that's descending so this you know this parachute is going to be dropping at 36 kilometers an hour because that's still fast so the pilot is going to have to go over the top of this or intersect it in a way that they can snare it whilst it's still dropping making sure he doesn't get too close to it because if he if um if they get too close to the parachute, you know, and they intersect with it, you know, worst case with the rotor blades, then that's game over. That's, that's, that's not yeah, a happy. That's bad news. Um, and how many, how many chances do you get at it? Because, you know, if you, if you miss once, then you've then got to get lower altitude quickly, recite it back onto it and then fly over it again. So the, presumably, you know, it's not just going to be the pilot themselves. They would have like uh, a load master, load crew, um citing it for them um but that's still gonna that's so that so then now we're into communication issues how do they make that work um so yeah that it, it could be quite quite uh an interesting thing to see and i if it was me i'd then be also having another helicopter alongside it just taking photographs and video oh yeah um which presumably they're going to do um but so take that take that first task how do we think the the pilot and their and the crew um, can get their situational awareness to to a sufficient point to be able to do this in a one um, in in a, in a one grab? Um, what's all, I'm because I'm thinking that you know the I'd want to have a camera underneath uh, to be able to see some of this sort of stuff. Some sort of I mean, I, ideally, I'd, as a pilot, you'd want some sort of uh, display that. On your ra- on your fl- um, flight radar, that you'd have some sort of interaction with, with the booster, um, so you at least because you you need to understand your um, the the your position um, horizontally towards um, where where it is. Not to mention, you know, you obviously got vertically as well. But it's um, yeah, I think it's it, it's exciting. It is right. So, like, yeah, you're right. There, are, there's a lot of different tasks going on, and I imagine some of this is proprietary, so we don't know exactly what's going on. But there's likely some sort of uh, way to monitor your distance to the target, your distance to the parachute. Really, in that case, uh, how how far out the grappling hook is. You also want to manage that with the distance away, so that the rotary blades do not interfere with either the parachute and you know set it off course, or you know you want it far enough away so that the grappling hook is stable and not swaying in the wind. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, and I'd imagine that the training for this looked very similar to, okay, let's pick something up off the ground where you know you're you're kind of stationary, you're picking something up off the ground, right? That's that exists today. That's probably the training for that, and then. You know, now let's try it with a moving object. Let's send something down in a parachute and see if we can hover over it and catch it. You know, and we've also done the rocket thing, too. We've done that. So let's, you know, now let's just try to do it all together. Um, so you do bring up. Yeah, go so ahead. The, the beauty about doing this in the helicopter, I guess, is, you know, because you can hover. 
Um, if you know the trajectory that it's coming down, because hopefully it's coming pretty much straight down, you could be hovering over to the side of it, because when you come and land a when you come and land a helicopter or um, um, a tilt rotor um, fast jet aircraft, so such as like the F thirty five, whatever, you tend to come and fly alongside whatever it is that you're landing on. Um, particularly if you know if you're going to land on a, on a ship or something, you would hover, you go to the left, you go to the side of it. So you definitely go to the 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 um, with the side of the pilot who's in control, and then effectively slip over to to the deck and land it. Now there's nothing to stop you using that technique as well um, at height. Mm-hmm. So if you're hovering over, it you you're sat in the um, in the right hand seat, um, and the 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 thing falls down past your window as you see the parachute go past you, you know, <laughs> slip over. And yeah, and, and almost because I sort of made the assumption that you'd fly straight at this thing, but maybe you don't. Maybe you do it on a, on a sideways perspective. That would be massively dependent on weather. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so back we'd, we've now, that's taken us full circle back to um, the skill involved in um, yes. what's, what sounds like a really simple maneuver comparatively is actually we've again compare and contrast between this and the and the SpaceX solution. The SpaceX solution is very technologically complicated, uh, but from a human perspective, I guess fairly simple because it's all automated and it either works or it doesn't. This solution is sort of technologically simpler because um, less automation, um, things like that, but much more reliant on human skill. Oh, wait till uh, they get drones to do this. This mm-hmm. would be just a different way to do it. You just Get a drone helicopter, throw it out there. But yes, I think, uh, thank you, Barry, for doing that transition because I think it is a good time for us to revisit some of these uh, human factors of helicopter uh, flight, right? Like there's there's a lot of different things, different ways in which we could approach this. I think, you know, we can kind of go over some of these major human factors concepts in aviation, uh, which are pretty standard things like instrument design, crew training. You already mentioned a couple of these crew interaction, safety oversight. You also have things like psychological factors, uh, fatigue and distraction. Then you also have um, a couple different ways in which, uh, I don't know, offshore transportation um, presents its own issues. You want to talk through some of those? Yeah. So offshore transportation, it, getting people out to, um, places, things like um, um, oil rigs and things like that. You use helipo- helicopter transportation because um, because of the nature of what they do, they, they go where other aircraft can't, um, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier. But by the very nature of the, they, they can go where other aircraft can't, the safety issues are therefore amplified because of the environment that they're flying in. So flying to and from offshore platforms is, is a serious area of concern. Um, the climatic conditions of some of those world uh, world's major energy production systems require nighttime flights, such as over Norway. We have them over here in the UK. You have them in the US, Canada. I mean, that means routine routine flights in degraded visual environments um, is is a is a normal thing to happen. And as the existing energy reserves dwindle, um, exploration is taken place even further and further offshore and into even more hazardous environments, which means more time flying over more remote stretches of sea uh, with variable weather. Um, weather, certainly around the UK, is is terrible. Um, so therefore, understanding and preventing accidents in, in offshore helicopter transportation will become more important over time. But using them skills, to link it back to the article, it's them sort of skills that we're going to be using um, to, to ca- randomly catch rockets falling out the sky. Yeah. 
I mean, especially when it comes to things like the weather, right? You, you brought up weather. Weather conditions are why they've been pushing this uh, aside uh, for the last couple of weeks because they didn't want to test it in an environment where they didn't have as much control over the variables as possible. And then you also have, um, you know, the the whole flying in uh, degraded visual environments. And so that is, of course, nighttime flights. Uh, and if you can't see a rocket coming at you from above, is it going to hit you? It just it's dangerous. <laughs> and so there's um there's that to consider, too. You, you know, some rocket uh, launches happen early morning when it is dark. And so that's also something to consider if you're trying to launch something. Is it going to be daytime by the time the rocket comes back down? It's only a couple minutes. So you're also working within the windows of being able to send a rocket up. So you have to consider nighttime launches in a lot of cases. Uh, we are bringing this up in terms of like the the offshore oil rigs. I think it's it's um, a fun look at how this is all working. And we brought this up, obviously, because you're over the water as you're catching this yep. airplane or not airplane, the, the rocket. Uh, sorry. Wrong story. Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> look, here's the thing, though. Uh, there's a there's a oil and gas UK report um, that said basically this offshore transportation accidents between 1991 and 2000. I know we're looking at like 20 years ago, but it came down to two things where you're having this introduction of new technology, i.e. better helicopters and introduction of several significant safety initiatives. Um, so, again, trying to think about some of these uh, safety initiatives that happened early, uh, what, early 90s to 2000. Thinking about all those things in place, which were meant to serve the human and to reduce the number of errors, um, all these accidents sort of uh, reduced over time. And and so we can think about this from the technology perspective as we think about the solution to catching a rocket. Mm -hmm. You're not adding really anything new. You, you, the technology is exactly the same. The, the processes and procedures by which are mostly applicable from other areas, you're now just using them on a falling rocket. And so all this stuff together, you're looking at um, nothing new, which I think is is not the nothing new um, comment is not a bad thing. It's a good thing in this context, because now we don't have to uh, relearn new skills or work with new technology or follow new safety protocols. I'm imagining a lot of that stuff is already in place. Um, you know, a more recent study, uh, 2001 to 2010, um, human factors uh, were the leading single cause of uh, uh, saving from off offshore uh, accidents. So, you know, uh, when you set aside, um, I guess, uh, or I guess human factors issues were the, were the most cited cause, right? So when you set aside things like climate or, or weather um, or technology, anything like that. If, if those didn't go wrong, human factors issues were prevalent and therefore uh, were more likely. And so it's, it's really important to put some emphasis on that as an area when you are dealing with catching a rocket booster out of midair. Okay, let's talk about Shell. Uh, who is Shell and what does she do? Barry. <laughs> so US journalist Harry Reasoner was renowned for his, his way with words. So it Two paragraphs he wrote on helicopters in 73. I've hovered around, excuse the pun, for many years on the internet. Um, so 
Uh, he said, the thing is, helicopters are different from aeroplanes. And this is what worth us talking about and highlighting. An aeroplane, by, by its very nature, wants to fly. And if not interfered with too strongly by unusual events or an incompetent pilot, it will fly. A helicopter does not want to fly. It's maintained in the air by a variety of forces and controls working in opposition to each other. And if there's any disturbance in the delicate balance, the helicopter stops flying immediately and disastrously. There is no such thing as a gliding helicopter. That's why helicopter pilot is so different, such a different being from an airplane pilot, and why in general airplane pilots are often uh, uh, open, clear-eyed, buoyant extroverts, and helicopter pilots are brooders, introspective, anticipators of trouble. They know if anything bad has not happened, it's about to. So let's leave aside the idea with the gliding bit of whether auto-rotation is a glide or a controlled fall. Um, but I th- yeah. he's clearly onto something. Um, they, these words get quoted time and time and time again. And actually, I, I've quoted them in, in reports myself. Um, the the whole different nature behind the two different type of pilot, um, I think, is, is really interesting. Anyway, the, the whole point about Shell with this is uh, the ICAO uses the Shell acronym. Um, so S-H-E-L is Software, Hardware, um, Environment, and Liveware. And as a model to represent various components of the human factors um, makeup of, of this, this can be expanded to shell, as in S C H E L L. So, software, culture, hardware, environment, liveware, and that's individual human liveware and liveware as as a teaming element between humans. So, I think it's probably worth us having a quick canter through the shell model uh, because there are some really interesting things here as uh, for. Um, with respect to helicopters. So do you want to kick us off a bit with the software side of things? Oh, I got to start with this? Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, software software is um, pretty self-explanatory. It is the way in which uh, basically you are working with uh, a machine that supports flying operations, uh, whether that's rules, procedures, checklists, written documents, all that stuff. Um, basically when you are looking at the software, um, some of this stuff is regulated and some of it is not. And so there's things to consider there. Uh, and there can be often a lot of human factors issues when it comes to software. So we got to make sure we get it right. Uh, when, um, you look at helicopter operations, some are regulated by Zacasa. Uh, yeah. and, and helicopter companies are required to have operating manuals, et cetera. So there's like, you know, some requirements in place. You have to have a manual or else, you know, who else is going to know how to fly it? And in terms of fundamental differences between helicopter and fixed wing software issues, there really shouldn't be any fundamental differences uh, other than um, the fact that you're operating a different vehicle. And, and that really comes down to the fact that uh, we're, we're kind of taking this safety and um, I guess, you know, air safety seriously. That's, I guess, what the difference is here uh, is that there is no difference. We're taking air, air safety seriously. Let's talk about culture, Barry. Yeah. So the culture that all involves like norms, the customs, the practices, conventions and habits. And it, that's all the stuff that I, that occurs outside of your standard operating procedures and regulations. The SOPs and regulations give you a set of behaviors um, and, and ways of working, but the, the culture is everything else around that. Um, you've been somewhere where they've turned around and said, you know, it's, it's the way we get things done. It's what, it's what we do on a day-to-day basis. It's, way, it's, what, it's how we act. 
Um, it's sort of what occurs to get the job done under, under pressure and what people fall back on. It might be uh, specific to the actual flying task, but it's also what you're experiencing in the crew room, in when you're planning, when you're um, hanging out together. So if you've got a poor culture in that, that's seen in the crew room or socially, that could be an indicator of actually a poor, uh, poor flying culture. Poor culture will also develop with substantial leadership, uh, sorry, substandard leadership and supervision, and and can lead to deviation from from software, including violations. Um, even though I said right at the beginning, this should be beyond um, the standard operating procedures and regulations. If you have a poor culture, it will lead you into causing violations and actually going against standard operating procedures. The helicopter industry has seen poor culture in the past. And the issues may also be structural. Pilots are often away from supervision for long periods uh, because of the way that they've been working with people from different cultures. And similar cultural interactions may be found in fixed wing, uh, where they've been looking at fire bombing operations or remote fixed wing charter operations. So the young mustering uh, helicopter pilot may, may have to be more aware of the influence of culture than their peer in a fixed wing charter pilot. It's a difficult thing to, to deal with because culture is something that is around you all of the time it's mm-hmm. something that, that is part of the your the company culture it's it's something that is not only top down but it's it's in between everybody it is continuous so it, it makes it hard to notice but you really notice it when it, it's either gone wrong um if you're or you're coming into a new organization so that's why from a human factors perspective we highlight um, culture and try and work on culture because because of its um pervasive nature do you want to talk us through some hardware elements? Yeah, so hardware is kind of the counterpart to the software. Uh, it's The hardware is the physical stuff. Uh, so the helicopter itself, the controls, the interfaces, the cockpit layout, all that stuff. Human factors 101, uh, a lot of it. So, you know, the the, hel- the hardware itself might be very simple in like a, you know, fly-by-wires type of situation, uh, direct mechanical controls, or... It could be, you know, a larger helicopter, like in this case, where you're you have sort of a hydraulic boosted uh, controls uh, mechanism um, or, you know, some stability system through an uh, autopilot assistive technology, that type of thing. Um, if you're looking at a large helicopter, some of those control flight control systems can actually be more complex uh, than your typical airliner. Um, you might have a bunch of different, uh, displays and controls to work with. You know, the displays themselves could be simple, conventional round dials like you might find, or it could be these large flat panel displays. They really vary. Um, and they all come with their own sort of pros and cons here as, you know, human factors practitioners and, uh, it's kind of our call to make on which one is going to be most effective in that situation in terms of external load um helicopters the critical engine instruments uh may be replicated below the side window to allow the pilot to monitor the load without actually having to look away check for engine performance so that's one of the considerations i bet is taken you know for this type of uh <laughs> rocket booster recovery mission right where you have um this uh some of the instrumentation might be replicated as they're looking down over the load. Um, so that's something to consider. You also have night vision. Of course, we talked about that stuff. And um, yes, that's about all I want to say about that. Let's talk about environment because we talked a little bit about this, but where does human factors come in? 
Yeah, so with the environment, we, we've got to really consider that the environment that we're operating in. So that's, a, you know, from the basics of temperature, humidity, noise and vibration. Noise and vibration within aircraft is um, within, is really important thing to be able to understand what is vibrating because you're in a platform that is vibrating or what is a, a, vib- a vibration that you're unaware of. Um, but then you've got things outside the cockpit. So the weather, the sun, moon, terrain, landing area, you know, all that sort of stuff about where are you going to be? Because you've got to be really aware of your um, your environment in a helicopter because the because you've effectively got that ability of 360 manoeuvre and a 3D manoeuvre, whereas in a fast jet or in any sort of um, aircraft, you tend to move forward, um, up, down, left, right, but you tend to always move in one direction. Um, helicopters tend to operate at lower altitudes. Uh, not all cockpits are air-conditioned. So heat, you know, simple thing, but it might, makes a really uncomfortable uh, flying environment. Um, helicopters can operate with the doors off uh, for better visibility and that wind chill can become a factor um, as well as just general safety as well. So they're, they're often noisy, um, ex- experience way more vibration as I've already mentioned than fixed wing aircraft. And the advantage, advantage of a helicopter, as we mentioned earlier, is the ability to hover and land vertically. It means that whilst that, that's a huge advantage, it means that they do operate very close to terrain. And the, um, the 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 landing sites may be unsurveyed, and so you don't. Sometimes you don't know what you're landing into, and that, therefore you have to have quite a um, a sensitive control through the hardware to to be able to get there. Um, and that's even before you get into the idea of where you're landing. You might have unexpected things like when um, the military have been landing in desert, you get this the 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 the, the sand whips up, so you get a brownout. Or if you're landing in in Arctic or Antarctic, whiteouts with with snow. So Yes, there's uh, there's a lot around the environment that can um, cause you issues with uh, within helicopters. What about liveware? Do you want to talk yeah. about people? People. That's really not important for human factors. Let's just get at it. No, I'm just kidding. So look, there's there's a couple. The the way in which this model sp- separates it, there's uh, liveware with the individual human, and then there's liveware between humans. So let's kind of talk about them, right? The the individual human. Um, there's obviously some things that are internally driven that we need to look at, like fatigue, um, stressors, those types of things, uh, which a good tieback is how the F-35 tried to kill its pilot. Go check that episode out. That was a really great one to do. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of different uh, other things that are going on with the individual, too. You could have, like, aeromedical disorientation, illusions, Um one that's specific to helicopters is flicker vertigo. So the the light that's coming through the rotor blades uh, creates kind of a strobe effect um, and it can cause disorientation, vertigo, nausea, all that stuff. Um, and in extreme cases, it can induce seizures, which is no good. Uh, and so there's, you know, hardware that introduces other sets of limitations like increased fatigue. Um or unique optical illusions in degraded environments. Now, when you think about between them, between humans, uh, that is like crew resource management. That is that is kind of the, uh, it's almost like a subset of culture in a, in a lot of ways where you are looking at humans external to the aircraft, um, but, uh, you know, so like air traffic control or support staff. So probably the people who are in the other helicopter taking pictures saying, hey, you know, you're, you're a little bit off, uh, you know, correct, by going forward or by rotating left 45 degrees or whatever could, you know, 
<laughs> feedback they're giving. Um, and and so it's different in a helicopter versus a fixed wing aircraft because, um, you know, you, you're you're thinking about uh, when you come back, you're, you're not you're thinking about different clearances for landing. Um, you know, not just a straight path, but something tighter. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, in a low-level helicopter environment, there might be a unique set of live wear interaction required between individuals to complete the task safely. Um, this would manifest itself in uh, the article in uh, actually putting this thing back on the ground. I think that's where you'd have a lot of communication with ground crews. Um, and so, I don't, I don't know. That it's a, it's kind of a cool model to go over shell. It's kind of cool to talk about. Uh, helicopter and we brought in a lot of examples about um you know what a helicopter human factors are and what a helicopter human factors are um but <laughs> what i'm trying to say here is that i, I think we covered our bases um and i, I want to pass it back to you barry any other key takeaways that you want to discuss in relation to shell um catching rocket boosters with helicopters uh, anything else so me for me it this is gonna it, it um, hits three different things, which I think are really exciting. Um, firstly, is around the whole situational awareness piece. So how do you know where, you know, as a pilot and, and as a crew, how do you know where you're at, where, where's the rocket at? You, you, you've you got that, dan that dynamic movement between the two. It's, it, it, they're not fixed. So you're going to have to be able to coordinate the two and, and basically bring in some human skill to make that happen. The... The, the risk appetite of the organization willing to do it. Uh, so that, that that's a behavior and cultural element there um, to be able to look at this and do, you know, take something that is being successfully done by one company um, and try and come up with a cheaper version of it. That's basically going to undercut um, that and, and progress technology further. Um, but then that just takes it all down to experimentation. I think this is going to be, We've seen what SpaceX did and how much money they literally burned trying to get this to work. Is this going to be something that will will get quicker um, um, access to market? And are we just going to now see a whole new skill set for helicopter pilots who maybe have come out the military or something like that to be able to then go and um, fly around with big hanging hooks under their uh, helicopters to be able to go and catch moving targets? I think it's going. To, I I can't wait to see this, the result of this, and whether it whether it actually works. Yeah, I'm looking at the little diagram they have. Just if you if you get a chance, go check out. They have a little little press kit that you can check out uh, that has a diagram of how this is supposed to work, um, and it's a uh, it's really a delightful little. Uh, little diagram anyway thank you uh that's that's our news story this week thank you to our patrons for selecting it uh and thank you to our friends over at ieee spectrum for our news story this week if you want to follow along we do post links to the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog and always join us on our discord for more discussion on these stories we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. 
Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our uh, patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patient, pa- patro- pa- patients, no, patrons like you keep the show going. You literally keep us running, uh, lights on in the lab, all that stuff. And thank you so much for your support. I do want to talk about Human Factors Minute. Now, this is a little something that we do over here for our patrons. Uh, if you're unaware, Human Factors Minute is a little slice of Human Factors that we package up and we highly produce and we do our research and we send it off in your merry way so you can enjoy it in one minute or sometimes more than that <laughs> but <laughs> oftentimes more than that but we, we package it up so you can enjoy human factors content on the go so to speak um so we have uh some some fun uh stats that we like to revisit from time to time regarding human factors minute barry uh, would you like to take a guess at how many Human Factors Minutes we have? Oh, if I was to pluck a number out the air, maybe, I don't know, around 120 maybe? Oh, you're looking at the same notes I have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have 120 episodes so far. Uh, total runtime uh, across all those episodes, which you would think would be two hours. We're actually at two and almost two and a half hours uh two hours 27 minutes and 40 seconds uh average length of one hour and 14 seconds um our longest episode was our our episode on the surface transportation technical group for hfes and then also for hfe tag there's a system safety health hazards and survivability those both clocked in at one minute and 59 seconds uh so look here's the thing if it doesn't have one minute in it then it's it's a separate piece of content. But we managed to get those in with one as the leading number. So that's kind of the cutoff for us is 159. So you might see a couple of those. Anyway, shortest episode was on uh, the aging technical group, and that was 40 seconds long. So you can kind of get a sense of the distribution, get a, get a sense of the topics there. Um, it's something that we're actually really proud of. And if you want to see our lab working on stuff, uh, we have a lot of our lab members actually doing the research on Human Factors Minute to keep the lights on. Um, and that's one way in which they contribute. So, yeah, they, they do other things, too. But that is kind of uh, um, an everybody uh, task to make sure that the Lowe's lights are yes. kept on because it's quite important. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's go ahead and get into this next part of the show. We like to call. It came from. It came from. Yes, it came from. This is where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. We ask that uh, if you find these answers helpful, no matter where you're at, just give us a like, help other people find this content. We have three today. The first one we're going to tackle here is what is the reality and day-to-day like for a UX designer or researcher? This is by 10 Pumps Classic, 10 Pumps Classic on the user experience research subreddit. UX research subreddit, sorry. Uh, they, they go on to write, what is the reality and day-to-day like for a UX designer or researcher? Um, I recently applied for and in, in the midst of interviewing for a certificate at my local community college to study in UX centered around the UX. 
design, uh, although I believe there will be parts of user research built in. I'm looking for a snippet, a snapshot of your day-to-day as a UX designer or researcher. What are you using? What tools do you need? Currently work in, okay, that's, uh, anyway, so <laughs> we'd love to generally hear about your experience as this is a potential path I would like to pursue, given the opportunity I have right in front of me. Thanks in advance for your insights. Barry, what is, uh, your, your role is not research, it's not, it's not UX researcher, but what is your typical day-to-day like? Um, and how might that differ from like a designer? So do we have that it depends button? Um, yeah, yeah oh. no, I think I think we we hit that one here because I don't think I have a typical day to day. Literally, you know, from everything that we we get involved with, it could be um, running workshops with clients about what they're trying to get out of, running workshops with um, users to try and get you know um, trying to uh, progress designs, running at, um, agile um, design workshops. Um, or just getting down with nitty gritty and work, you know, working through design development. Um, in terms of tools that we use, it's whatever's most appropriate for the time. The amount one day we could be using something like Figma in terms of um, developing some um, really in depth um, things like that, or we back on pen and paper. Um, or um, I've recently become um, quite quite partial to A five post its. Um, a five size, size post-its right so I, I do a lot of work on post-its that's probably the biggest thing i burn through um, but i've found a five large color post-its and they are amazing on because they they can stick to most walls and stuff so that is, sponsor? well not yet but maybe <laughs> there should be um but, but to be able to use them sort of things they, they, they end up be quite flexible and you can sort of sketch things out quite nicely on them and and make that work so generally i mean this is quite a hard question for me to answer because I don't have a I don't have a typical day and that's part of the fun for for me. Um, it just keeps us it keeps you entertained and if you start having too many days the same I, I get bored. So yeah. what about you? What's what's your um, what's your experience in in this? So let me be clear. My title is senior user experience researcher. That is my title. So I feel like I am uh, capable of answering this. You're qualified. <laughs> I am qualified. <laughs> Look, here's the thing: is uh, what Barry said is correct. <laughs> There is no typical day. However, I'll give you a formula by which you can operate on. Um, There's a couple things that can be happening at any given time, uh, depending on where you're at in the design development uh, research process, right? So, you know, depending on what project you're on, you might be in the user research phases. You might be translating that research into designs. You might be working with uh, PMs and developers to ensure that those designs get coded into software correctly. You might be uh, working to um, test that stuff that has been in design for a while. Uh, and then you also might be at the other end where you're planning research. You're, there's there's some context that's coming up that you want to understand what you need to do next. And so my formula is this. Um, pick any one of those and that's kind of what your typical day looks like, uh, depending on that process. Um, now it really gets interesting when you start mixing and matching. So I'm not just on one product, uh, sort of track or anything like that. I'm spread across several. Um, and so there's many different levels of research going on at the same time. And so my day looks like a little bit of this phase where I'm looking at the research that needs to be done and a little bit of this phase where I'm talking to designers about solutions on another thing and a little bit of this phase where I'm organizing times to talk with people. And it's it's uh, 
you know, you know, you kind of stack those up. And because of that mix match of where we're at in the process and other things that need to happen behind the scenes, like setting up research infrastructure, which happens from time to time where you need to create, I don't know, Excel spreadsheets uh, that contain data and all that stuff. Uh, there, it really depends on where you're at in the process. Um, and you, you mix match those things. You'd be good. Good enough answer. Uh, tools. I don't know. It doesn't matter. You find something that works for you. <laughs> <laughs> really it doesn't matter um as long as it works for it, the pen and paper is probably best uh you know you could do uh i use google suite because that's what my company uses like i it, it really just depends um all right next question i want to change my c- career path from traffic engineer to ux researcher what should be my plan of action this is by uh alberta Al- alberta key Al- Al- hmm. I feel like I'm not saying that right. Uh, on the UX research subreddit, hello everyone. I'm a mid-level traffic engineer with a master's and PhD degree in transportation and highway engineering. I'd like to know what skills I need to develop to break into UX research. Um, and then they go into a brief uh, snapshot of current skills. Some of it's relevant, some of it's not. Barry, let's talk though. How do you break into human factors from another, um, let's say, tangentially related uh, domain? Yeah, I mean, what I find is that quite a lot of people break into human factors from from the engineering side of things. I know um, I did it myself. Um, quite a few other people have done it. In many ways, it's I don't know if there's um. I mean, you, what's suggested is you know, do you go do you go and do get, get another master's in HCI design or something like that? That's definitely an approach. Um, if you've got the time, effort, and money to be able to go and go and do that, then that's great. Um, the way I would do it because you you basically because you've already got your master's PhD, you already know how to learn. That's all cool. Um, but actually, why not, you know, really what you want to be doing now is going to get yourself immersed in the environment. Um, so either go and um, um, find maybe either a different role or either a paid role or a volunteer role um, to go and do that. We, you know, the, I think some people have got a, um, um, a, a human factors lab somewhere that might be um, an obvious place to go and look. But um but you know, go, so go go and get some experience of it. Go or go and do some voluntary stuff and see whether you do like it. Fundamentally, actually, the the best thing you can do if you can get it is to get some is to um, be employed to do it. Um, and so, obviously, if somebody's willing to give you a job either within the company you're in, and you sort of say, "Look, I'm in," you know, if you're doing this traffic engineering, um, if you've got so if if you talk to the senior management, and say, "Look, I'm interested in doing this. Can I do a project that is." that uses the skills that I've got, but then also uses them and applies them in, in a um, human factor stroke UX environment, then you'll do a, do a transition. That's effectively what I did. I was in, I was employed to be a software engineer and in, in a cockpit team. And then I was like, Oh, I like this designing of cockpit stuff. That's really exciting. And ended up not doing any software with them at all. I basically got into this and then it sort of ballooned from there. So yeah. There's, there are a number of different routes, education, but I think with where you're at and saying, you know, you've kind of done the education formal bit, I don't think doing another master is going to help you. I think you need to go and do uh, some actual, go and do some actual work to, and so try and find an opportunity. Yeah. I, I skipped over the skills here. I'm going to bring in a couple because I think understanding what skills you have that are transferable and understanding how what you have done already um, kind of emulates the type of work that you will do as a human factors practitioner or UX researcher is really important. Um, so to recap some of their skills, uh, 
comprehensive knowledge on research processes, including uh, lit review, experiment design, questionnaire and survey development, data analysis and interpretation, communicating research findings to technical and non-technical audiences, extensive research experience in traffic safety and driver behavior analysis, published several journal articles, conference papers, technical reports, and one book chapter. I think that's a ton of Boom. applicable skills. Like all you have to do is change your job title from where you're at right now and say, I've done a lot of the stuff that UX research does. And that sounds very reductive. You'll learn a lot on the job. Um, but if you already know a lot of these skills, if you go in just like, I don't know, look up what UX research does and understand the process and how you uh, sort of integrate with, I don't know, a software team, if you're trying to get there, I don't think it's so far out of left field that you wouldn't have uh, a, a hard time finding it. Anyway, that's that's just my two cents. Look at the transferable skills. Yeah. See if, see if the the only thing I would, I would add to that is read a book on Agile, because actually with them skills, yeah. if you combine that with Agile, then you'll be well ahead. You're good to go. All right, last one here is by Short Shorts. Okay, uh, on the user experience subreddit, are user personas for journey mapping usually arbitrary or based in data? Sometimes when looking at other people's personas for products and applications that have a very broad audience, I fail to see how having two user personas is useful when it doesn't capture all the users. It feels like fluff rather than useful data. Can anyone provide clarification for how and why it's useful? Barry, let's just talk about personas. How do you use them? Uh, do you use them? Is it useful? What's up? Yes, I, I love using personas. I think they're such a valuable and powerful tool if you, if you get them and use them in the right way. So the way I use them is the way you've got loads of data and um, we talk about target audiences and things like that, where being 59th percentiles and all the, all this sort of jazz. But actually, if you can, when you're actually delivering and talking about a solution to uh, particularly stakeholders or um, the so other users about why you've done done something, if you're just talking about about the well, I've got a user, and they could they could be anything from this height to this height, this sort of reach, and this. Sort of, we we so we abstract out the um we, we don't feel like we're talking about actual people. If you can actually get the averages of all of them, so this is where it's actually some of it's based on useful data. It should be based on on your target audience um, description. Uh, you know what what your ranges of metrics are, um, but also you get some characteristics. So how old are they? What what sort of stage are they at in their careers and things like that? And that fluff, as they describe it, is all about making them feel like and look like a person. So you're not talking about a random user anymore. You're talking about Bob, or you're talking about Mary, or you're talking about Phil, or you're talking about Jackie. Um, you give them names, you give them personalities, so they actually feel like you're designing um, and developing and testing something for somebody, not just a thing. So, yes, I can see why they can be, why they might feel and seem like um, not very useful, um, but actually, I think they're one of the most powerful things we have in our toolbox. That is so interesting to me because uh, we, we rarely disagree, Barry. And I, I think that the fluff part of it is the least interesting part to me. I tend to create personas based around, yes, data, but I I very much um, put them into their own roles. So they're like role-based personas, right? So we still attach things like Jim from accounting, uh, who makes this much a year, all that stuff. It, what If it helps somebody, fine. Um it doesn't help me. The things that help me are things like what challenges are this person experiencing and why is the thing that we're designing uh, going to be a solution for those challenges? What are their goals? What are their key tasks? Those types of things are 
tremendously valuable for me. And if we can get those from an average of data, and that's now you're looking at like a qualitative analysis of uh, a bunch of different, you know, text fields. Really, yeah. that's your job to kind of pare that down and say, okay, yes, this is what we have. This, these are the themes in which they are uh, experiencing these uh, problems through. And anyway, that's it. Um, I, I, I think uh, people find value in different things, and for me, it's it's more of the like procedural. How do we how do we capture that? Cool. All right, uh, that's one more thing. That's just where we talk about one more thing. Uh, Barry, what's your one more thing this week? I went to conference this week. You did. Amazing. It was so nice to be able to get in a room with people and and just discuss, just have a chat and a catch up and a, you know because it's all very well, you know, the all the stuff we did we you know, we did the virtual conference a few uh, couple weeks earlier, which was nice. It was good. It, you got all the information, but this was all around, you know, for me it's like I, I don't want to be geek about it, the non-technical skills. It was the being able to have a bit of a laugh and catch up and know what you're doing with yourself now and the the um, you know, looking at other people across the room and say, "Oh, I haven't seen that person in ages." Oh, I, I and there was a couple of people I went up to um, who I was like, "Oh, hey, how are you doing?" And and, and they were like, "Do you realise we've never actually met?" You know, we've you know the past two two three <laughs> years in London, we've talked online and Zoom and stuff, but we never actually met face to face. And there was a couple of them there that I was like, I didn't even realise, and I was like, "Oh yeah, um, that's." It. I don't know whether I should be embarrassed about that, but um it was you know the time i was just like oh yeah uh, well okay well that's fine um it was just a weird from that it it was weird bizarre but brilliant did did you did you get anyone coming up to you saying oh my god you're you're barry kirby from that 1202 human factors podcast i did Oh, it was amazing. I, I, if I had more than one person coming up saying, I listen to your podcast and I really like it. Um, so I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just sold. And if I had had my stickers, they would have got a sticker, but <laughs> I didn't have a sticker because they were in a stupid case back in my stupid house. I, I was gonna say, Were they in the case? <laughs> <laughs> they were in the case as well. Uh, everything was in the case. Uh, but no, that, and in fact, a couple of them who, um, Express delight in listening to my podcast where uh, I'm going to be interviewing them tomorrow uh, so that get, get their opinion. So very exciting. That's so awesome. oh, it was, anyway, enough about me um, um, talking, actually talking to real people. Nick, what about you? Uh, so listeners, longtime listeners of the show know that I have a 3D printer. Uh, we recently moved within the last year, uh, about a year ago, actually. And since then, it's kind of been in uh, not storage. It's been out, but not put together. I recently put it back together because we're starting a new project. Uh, it's it's a helmet for my son. Um, we, he's uh, we're, we're going to a, a Star Wars conference, uh, Star Wars convention. Sorry, uh, <laughs> next month, and we're we're putting a, a costume together for him. So I 3D printed a helmet. It fits on him, and now I'm in the stages of you know all the sanding and and finishing, and it's a ton of fun. Um, yeah, I don't know if you, if you want to see more of that, come come me on discord uh but that's gonna be it for today everyone if you like this episode and enjoy uh some of the conversation about helicopters doing unique things i'll encourage you to go listen to episode 203 we talk about uh the challenges of flying a helicopter on mars and always comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week uh for more in-depth discussion you can join us on our discord community reach out to us we're always hanging out there um Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple of things you can do. One, you can always leave us a five-star review. It's free for you to do and really easy, quick, you know, 
Feel free to. Uh, and then, two, you can always tell your friends about us. Uh, that way they come up to Barry at, at conferences and say, hey, you're the guy on that podcast. Uh, uh, three, if you have the means and want to support us financially, you can always support us on Patreon. All those go back directly into the show, into the lab, uh, and help our lab members create some beautiful things. And as always, uh, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk to you about being caught by a helicopter? <laughs> you want to get be caught by a helicopter? Find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K, LinkedIn at Mr. BP Kirby, or come and listen to 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, where we have interviews with interesting people at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs> <laughs>